0: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you know that culture and uh, society, this our immediate context does affect the way we believe about God. It forms our worldview. And part of that worldview is our spirituality. So, what we believe religiously speaking, what we think about the faith is for largely formed by the culture around us. Unless you do a really deep dive into the faith and get, I don't know, a master's degree or a doctoral degree in theology or something like that, there's gonna be a lot of assumptions that we make about religion, about our faith, that are based on what we know about the world around us. So the world around us does affect what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about one another, what we believe about salvation and all about the church and all these things. Mercy is one of those things. What we believe about mercy and forgiveness is affected heavily, in my opinion, by our surrounding culture. And in this particular case, our surrounding culture is very legalistic. We are, especially the United States. It is a very legalistic society. It's always been, and more so now. Everything uh, has to do with liabilities and legalities, and everything to do with the law. So many things about our culture is shaped by the law. The law looms over us and underneath us and around us, and this is just the way the society is. That's because Western culture today seeks, in a sense, seeks after justice, and you can only find justice, or you can only do that on a whole societal level when you enforce it by law and you police it. So we tend to think of mercy in that way too. So when we think of God's mercy, we have a tendency or we're inclined to believe about God's mercy the way we would, we would believe about the mercy of the court system or something like that. So that if God forgives us, then that means it's something like, it's in the image of what it would be if we were exonerated in court, had we done something bad. If we, did a, if we committed some criminal act and the court just decided to exonerate us, that would be our mental image of what it looks like that God has forgiven us. It's not really the case though. The mercy of God is not like the mercy of the judicial system. The mercy of God in the judicial system, don't do anything bad, but if you do something bad and you're exonerated, it's on paper that you were forgiven and you're clean, your record is clean, you're good to go. With God, it's not exactly the same. Obviously with God, When we go to confession, for example, we have a clean slate, we are forgiven, we are no longer held accountable or guilty for the sins that we committed, anything that we've confessed. But it's a lot more than that, God's mercy. God's mercy is a living thing. God's mercy is an active thing. It is something that transforms, it affects reality. It's just, I'll I'll give you the best image for this. In the book of Genesis, in the beginning, it says, God created the heavens and the earth, and he said, let there be light, and then there was light. When God speaks, things happen. It's not just pocha. It's not just things that go out into the air. It's not like our words. Our words just kind of go out into the air. They don't really affect things unless someone takes action. God's words actually brings things into existence. It actually affects reality. God's word alone affects reality. When God bestows on us his mercy, it's a transforming principle. It is an active, living, real thing. It is not just a word. It isn't just something written on paper. It's not just that we have a clean slate. It actually transforms us from the inside. That's why it's so good. That's why it should be sought after all the time. That's why when people tell me, for example, oh, you know, I don't go to confession because I confess with God in my heart. Well, good. You should do that all the time. But it's just not enough. You need the sacrament. The sacrament is an actual, that is where, in the sacraments, God's word speaks and affects reality. Between me and God, it's just, it's good. For prayer, and for meditation, for all these things, there's a relationship being built. But it's the sacraments that affect reality. The sacraments are the miracles that God gives to us or when people tell me I don't go to confession because I commit the same sins over and over and over again, this is the wrong way to think about confession. We're, we're, going, we're creatures of habit, They're, obviously we're going to be falling into the same habits until we kick them, but we should go to confession regardless because confession is the Word of God that transforms. Through confession we are given the grace to actively become new human beings, the confession itself will help us transform that part of our lives. In the Gospel reading, there's an interaction between Jesus and the disciples. This is Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday still. It's the evening of Easter Sunday. And the the disciples are afraid, understandably so, because the Jewish authorities that kill Jesus still have some work to do to shut down this new, uh, this new uh, uh, group, to shut down this new thing that's happening with people believing that Jesus is the Messiah. They kill Jesus, they kill the Messiah, but now they have to go after his disciples. So they're afraid. They lock themselves in, in the room and Jesus comes in. He appears to them in the resurrected body. And Jesus shows them his hands and his side, shows them that it is truly him and that he is not a ghost. He kept his wounds. Thomas doesn't believe it. And Thomas, the apostle, says, basically, I need proof. I need proof. And the proof is gonna be, I'm gonna put my finger in his hands and my hand in his side where the wounds are. So eight days later, Jesus shows up again. Kind of like a guess who's back moment. Jesus shows up again. And he says to Thomas, come fulfill, satisfy your requirements for believing in me. But he also chides him a little bit. You believe now because you've seen me, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. It's not good, Thomas, that you asked for proof in this way, but I gave it to you, but it is not a good thing. Why is it not a good thing? What's the value of faith? What's the value in not seeing the resurrected body of Jesus and believing that he is risen from the dead? What's the value there? Why is that good for us? Well, if we want the mercies of God, that active, living, real, concrete principle that actually changes our lives, the first step to that mercy in a true sense not in the legalistic American judicial sense, but in the real living transforming sense. The first step to obtaining that mercy is a genuine true act of faith. Believing in something that's beyond our comprehension, believing in something that's beyond our understanding, something that's beyond our capacity to reason, something more than we can think about, something bigger and better than us, believing in God, is the first step to obtaining that mercy. That's why the Creed, for example, begins with the words, we believe in one God. That is a blockbuster statement. It's not, we say it all the time, but it is not something to be taken lightly. To say, I believe in one God, I'm saying a gigantic thing. I'm not just saying words here. I'm saying, I believe in one God, and this God is the ruler of my life. He forms every aspect of who I am. And everything that I believe, all my worldview, everything I think about myself, others, and the world, depends on this one statement, we believe in one God. So if we say, if we make a genuine act of faith, Jesus is risen from the dead, he has conquered death. If we believe that, and we believe that he did that for our salvation, without having seen him. That is a major statement. That is a huge thing that we are claiming and a life-altering if we take it seriously. The reason why faith is so valuable, without which nothing else is possible, certainly not obtaining this transforming mercy of God, the reason why it's so absolutely transforming, and and is so valuable, and is so foundational, is because what it says is, I depend on another. I depend on God to define who I am. I depend on Christ, who has died for me, to define my very person. I depend on Jesus, who has risen from among the dead, to overcome all of my fears. And if I depend on him for that, I depend on him also for mercy. I don't depend on myself, and I don't depend on anybody else either. I depend solely on him. That's what it means to say, I believe in God. That's what it means to say, I believe in Christ. To depend on him wholly and fully, and not on myself or anything else or anybody else. That's why Jesus makes such a big deal throughout the entire gospel about faith. When people ask him to heal them, to heal a loved one, anybody, he asks them always in response, do you believe that I can do this? And when they say yes, he, he is free to perform the miracle. But when he goes to Capernaum and there there's no faith, he didn't work many miracles there. Just a couple of healings, that's what it says in the gospel. Because a lack of faith impedes even the action of God. Brothers and sisters, what do I I mean by faith here? I wanna really drive this point home. It means that when when we lock ourselves up in our room because we're afraid, it means when there's an entire world around us that's intimidating. Maybe an entire world around us that is after us. Maybe, like in the Psalm 23, it says, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Why does the psalmist fear no evil? Why is it that the apostles, after having locked themselves up in the upper room in this gospel reading, come out of the upper room on Pentecost, and they're fearless? They go out preaching boldly. Why is it that saints, who are otherwise weak human beings, are so strong and legendary and they're so powerful in the world and they've caused so much good to come upon the earth. Why is it that the weakest who believe in Christ turn out to be the strongest? The Psalm goes on, for you are with me. I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your crook and your staff, they comfort me. Faith, believing in someone higher than us, Extending ourselves out, giving ourselves over to someone, Christ, who has died for us, who has risen from among the dead, giving ourselves over to him without having seen him means that we risk ourselves, but it's a good risk. And when we do that, that establishes that link between us and God in the heart. And when we have that link, then we're without fear. Then we can beg for the mercy of God and be assured that he's going to give it to us, and that mercy will transform us. It will do all kinds of things in us. You are weak, and so am I. But with St. Paul, we can say, I rejoice in my weakness, for in my weakness, God is free to act, and therefore, I am all the stronger for it. This is the reason why in the early church, they were able to stand up to kings and emperors and even be slaughtered, crucified, burned alive. They were able to be eaten up by lions in the Colosseum. Every kind of horrible thing they were able to endure without fear because of this great faith. Having not seen Jesus, they believe in him. And having believed in him, they know that they have nothing to fear because Christ is with them. Brothers and sisters, Thomas, St. Thomas, is our uh, church father in the Chaldean Church. He's the one that came to Mesopotamia and evangelized us. But let's not imitate him in this thing. In this thing, let us learn from his mistake and not uh, ask for proof and having uh, force God to satisfy our curiosities before we can say I believe in God and I'm going to live according to that belief and I'm going to put all my eggs in this one basket in the resurrection of Jesus and it's that resurrection that's gonna define my life. Amen.